legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael Mulligan. How you doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Lots of interesting things on the agenda today. A search of a home incidental to an arrest. What are we looking at? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so this is a case that was just uh, released by the Supreme Court of Canada. And it deals with the issue of how far can the police go in searching your house uh, when they are arresting someone. Uh, And so the starting point for that that people should know about is that if the police have grounds to arrest somebody, ordinarily that would be reasonable grounds to believe that the person's committed a criminal offense and the police are arresting you, they would be permitted to search the person and the immediate surrounding area of the person that they are arresting. Immediate uh, surrounding area. Okay. Yeah, like, for example, um, you know, they could uh, potentially have a look around if they were arresting somebody in the car, looking around the driver's seat area, for example. Um, and the reason that kind of searching is permitted as a common law principle would be to permit a search to ensure safety of the police, like make sure they don't have, person doesn't have a gun in their pocket or knife or something, uh, to make sure they don't have something that would allow the person to escape, right? They haven't put handcuff keys in their pocket or something as a proactive measure. Uh, And further, the police can actually search for evidence of the offense for which they are arresting somebody. So, for example, if the police have reasonable grounds to believe that you have robbed the bank and they are arresting you, they'd be able to search you and your surrounding area, maybe something like the backpack you were carrying, right? To look for things like, is there a mask and gun and bag of money in there? (laughs) Well, you should probably seize that. Now, it gets a little trickier uh, and a little murkier from a legal perspective when the police are conducting a search in somebody's home. And here's the fact pattern that the Supreme Court of Canada was wrestling with. Police had a report of a, a male hitting a woman in a car. Please show up. No male or female there, but they do find the car parked in the driveway of a home. They knock on the door. No one answers. The police decide they're going to go in without a search warrant to ensure the safety of the woman who is reported to have been hit. They open the door, and shortly after, they see a woman with bruises on her face, and they see a man run across from one room to another down some stairs. Mm. They go down. They arrest Uh the man. They search him, but then they decide to go and do a search in the room that the man ran out of. The man's not in the room. (laughs) The woman's not in the room. The man doesn't have any control over, at that point, what's going on in there. The man's been arrested, right? Yeah. When When they go into that other room, they see a clear bag with what they believe to be drugs in it. They see that, and he's charged with possessing those drugs for the purpose of trafficking. Yes. And so the legal question for the Supreme Court of Canada is, well, how far does that common law principle go in, in the context of searching other areas of somebody's home? Yeah. Because there is a heightened expectation of privacy in somebody's home, and the legal starting point would be you need to have uh, prior judicial authorization before you're going to be permitted to conduct a search. You know, and, and this isn't really a search that the person's not escaping using something in the other room. What's the legal status of that? And so ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada, what they've done is that they have set out stricter standards for that kind of a search, which is to say the police searching something in a person's home outside of their immediate area when they are arrested, going into the other room. Uh, And what the Supreme Court of Canada has said is that in order to do that, 
the police need to have reasonable grounds to suspect uh, that there's something in that other place that could be a safety risk to the police or other people or to the public. And when they're conducting that kind of a search, it has to be done in a way that is consistent with that safety concern and reasonable, bearing in mind that higher degree of privacy somebody would expect in their home. And so they've raised the bar in terms of what needs to happen uh, in order to uh, legally justify a search of another area of a home. But in this case, and this is interesting, Mm -hmm. the police testified that they had a a safety concern about that other room. Uh, And the Supreme Court of Canada and the trial judge accepted that uh, and accepted sort of the proposition that this was a fast-changing circumstance. They didn't know exactly what was going on. Um, And the trial judge accepted that the police had a safety concern about what might be going on in that other room. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, well, that's uh, when trial judges come to a conclusion like that, it's due a lot of deference. Uh, And so they found that uh, it wasn't unreasonable for the trial judge to have come to that conclusion. The police testified they had a concern. Maybe there could be another person in the other room or some kind of a weapon, although it's a little hard to imagine how the weapon concern would play out if there wasn't some other person in there and they've already arrested their suspect. Uh, But bearing in mind the fast-changing circumstances that were going on and the lack of clarity, remembering they just sort of showed up in response to this report of a woman being hit in a car and they saw this person male dart from one room to the other, they found that that wasn't an unreasonable conclusion for the trial judge. And so in this particular case, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, found that it wasn't improper for the judge to have admitted the evidence of the drugs found in the bag in the other room of the home when the police went and did what they described as a uh, clearing search of that other room. But this case going forward uh, is going to provide some structure and test if the police want to conduct that kind of an additional search. That's a search sort of outside of the immediate you know, area or person, right? That, that area you know, could include things like the backpack at a person's feet or you know, things immediately surrounding them. But once they start to tiptoe out of that, particularly in the context of a person's home, they're going to need to satisfy a judge uh, that they were doing that additional searching uh, for as a result of a safety concern, and they have to have reasonable grounds to suspect that. And so they would have to articulate and explain to the judge, you know, what risk was posed when you searched fill in the blank, the medicine cabinet, right? Or the kitchen drawer or the underwear drawer, right? And the further and more intrusive the search was, you know, the harder time the police might have in justifying it, right? I I dare say if you're going through somebody's medicine cabinet as a purported safety search, you're going to have a pretty tough time, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, in some sort of emergent circumstance where somebody's injured and they're sort of rushing in and they sort of look briefly at another room to see, hey, is there some other person in there? What's going on here? That may be fine, but they're going to have to justify it on this higher standard the Supreme Court of Canada has set out, and that higher standard is designed to bear in mind both that constitutional right, you have to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, and as well to recognize that people do have a higher expectation of privacy in their home. The starting point is that the police can't come and rummage through your home to see what they might uh, shake out of it, Uh, but there are some circumstances like this uh, where the uh, police conduct uh, may be uh, permissible. And in this particular fact pattern, uh, the man stands convicted of the 
possession of the drugs found when the police went into the other room uh, and spotted them uh, sitting, I believe, on a table. There we go. Now we have our answer from the court. I want to take our first break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues his analysis right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, continuing with Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, what's next on our agenda today? The next on our agenda is parking at the University of Victoria, and in particular, parking during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, and so the fact pattern here is that uh, the University of Victoria sells parking passes to students. You can buy parking passes for 12 months and get, I think, some sort of a discount, uh, or you could buy them for shorter periods of time but pay more. Uh, and the uh, student in this case was uh, a student who purchased a $568.05, how they calculated that number is a little hard to know, yeah. uh, parking pass. Uh, to park between September 1st and August 31st, 2020. And so, as you might imagine, uh, when the university shut down in March of 2020 and essentially canceled all uh, in-person classes, moved to online uh, instruction and shut the gym, uh, the uh, student in question asked for a prorated uh, refund on his parking pass, uh, but was told no. Uh, and the University of Victoria relied upon the terms of sale, the contract for the sale of this parking pass. And the way the annual parking passes worked is that they said for the first four months, you could get a refund, no questions asked, <laughs> for no reason, right? You could get a refund, prorated presumably, or you would just keep buying those. I was going to say, that um, seems like a loophole. Yeah. That's why you're the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very... Poorly drafted contract. So I think you get prorated refund. Yeah, prorated refund for the first four months. No need to give any reason for it. Who knows? Maybe you stopped taking classes or bought a bike or something. Yeah. Uh, but after that, the contract said no refunds for any reason. Uh, and so uh, the uh, student wasn't happy with that uh, outcome. Uh, money, no doubt, tight as an undergraduate student. Um, and so he asked for his money back and started this case, going to court asking for his money back. And the one of the principal arguments that the student was making is the concept of the contract being what's called frustrated. You might have heard that sort of concept, right, of frustrated contract. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, what is that? Um, and so a frustrated contract, there are two elements to the test for whether a contract is frustrated. Uh, the first is that... Um, a, an event for which the contract was uh, made no provision occurred, like an unforeseen uh, uh, event occurred that was not contemplated by the contract, uh, that was not the fault of either party, and which resulted in a radical change in the nature of the fundamental contractual obligation. It's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. But those are the elements, right? It's got to be this unforeseen event. Nobody made any provision for it. It's not the fault of anyone, and it radically changed you know, the fundamental nature of the contractual obligation. So that's the test for it. And the decision which just came out this week was a decision uh, as an application brought by the university to uh, cancel or strike out the claim brought by the student on the basis that it had no chance of success at trial, right? Sort of the, what your claim to your can't work, right? No tribal issue. Yeah. And so the judge had to analyze, was the parking contract frustrated in a legal sense as a result of canceling all of the classes and shutting down the gym? Because the student argued that, look, there's sort of an implied term here that 
there would be something you might want to park for <laughs> at the university, uh, right? And his uh, evidence was, look, you know, I purchased this for the purpose of going to class and going to the gym. Uh, and so the trial judge or the judge had to struggle with what are the, is there an implied term of the contract, right? That they, the university remain open. Yeah. Um, and then was there a, in the legal sense, a frustration of the contract by the intervening fact of the pandemic closing everything? Uh, and it, ultimately, the judge concluded that both there was no implied term in the contract uh, that there be uh, classes open, uh, that this contract was simply a contract to park your car at the University of Victoria, and this was the language you used. Well, I accept that switching to online learning and the campus closure rendered the parking contract less useful. I am unable to conclude that it renders it fruitless. And so essentially the judge concluded that there was no implied term uh, that something would be open that you might wish to park for. This was just a contract to park there. And that wasn't frustrated, right? Like it wasn't like a meteor hit the university and there was no parking spots left, you could still go and park there. And so she concluded that the contract wasn't frustrated uh, because uh, it, first of all, wasn't a completely unforeseen uh, event. The contract contemplated somebody canceling it for any reason within four months. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, you could still go park your car up there. Uh, and she found that there wasn't some implied condition of the con term of the contract that classes would keep going. Right. You could purchase, a, you know, if you wanted to park up there to go, you know, walk your dog or uh, just wanted to park there. Uh, and so the result of it uh, is that the judge found uh, that there was no triable issue here. There was no hope that uh, the student would succeed uh, in his claim uh, because the contract wasn't frustrated and there was no implied term that classes would keep going or the gym would be open. The parking contract was only a contract to park, uh, and the work, he wasn't prevented from parking there. He just happened to have no particular need to park there after the uh, university shut down for all in-person um, uh, operations. And so the net result, not only will uh, the student not uh, wind up with a prorated refund of his $568.05, uh, but uh, the judge has also ordered costs in favor of the university. And so I rather suspect that the the student may be on the hook for vastly more than the prorated five hundred and sixty eight dollars. Uh, he's going to wind up with a uh, big bill of costs uh, as a result of this uh, litigation, which the university has succeeded uh, in having stopped uh, on uh, the basis of indicated. The so, anticipated cost, yeah, the anticipated costs of litigation itself, often serving as a deterrent for either frivolous or misuse of the courts, and this may, in time, I think, viewed uh, be viewed by some as being exactly that. What do you think? You know, that, that's a, a concern. It's it's also a, a live issue in terms of how class actions are dealt with, right? I see. Because this student wasn't operating on the basis that this is just my effort to get back the prorated $568. I see. Ultimately, it was going to try to be a class action to get a refund for all of the students. Okay. Right? Nobody's, nobody's litigating $568, no. right? That doesn't make any sense. No. Uh, and in B.C., once a case gets certified as a class action, at that point, there isn't a costs risk to the person who's the potential plaintiff. But here... This application by the university 
was prior to the case being certified as a class action. And so what it means is that this student uh, will be personally on the hook for the costs, um, right? And of course, it, it's hard to know uh, sort of what, uh, how that person came about or whether they uh, were recruited to be the representative person or wanted to do it. It's hard to know. Yeah. But one of the concerns there is it could be potentially a deterrent uh, to bringing meritorious or arguably meritorious claims on behalf of other people as a class action, right? Uh, because for an individual, you, you might say, why would I risk costs being awarded against me of thousands of dollars when all I can possibly get out of this is going to be a couple hundred bucks back for my parking pass? But if nobody's willing to stand up and argue about that, you may never have litigation to sort out whether there should have been a refund for the parking passes, which could turn out to be a very large amount, just spread out over a, a large number of people. Um, and so the cost thing is a really uh, interesting point. Other provinces in class actions have taken a completely different approach. Like in Ontario, uh, if a party loses, there can be a cost award. And so you could wind up with a representative plaintiff potentially on the hook for huge sums of money uh, if a, a class action goes all the way to the end and then does not succeed. And so I guess there would be a, a really interesting public policy question there. Should you have costs awards against uh, people who are bringing a proposed class action? Or, you know, the upside is that that might deter uh, claims that aren't meritorious. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, sometimes that might not be obvious at the beginning. Uh, and so you could wind up in a circumstance where a person might be deterred from bringing a claim that could be in the broad sort of public interest, right? If you want to encourage, uh, you know, the resolution of uh, things where you've got a large number of people who may be out uh, cumulatively a lot of money, but individually not so much, um, and which is really sort of the purpose of the uh, class action regime. Otherwise, large entities could do with impunity whatever they want yeah. uh, and then require everyone to sue them individually, which would not make, in most cases, much sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, though, the way you explain it. Thank you for that. We have uh, three and a half minutes left, and I'm reading here, and I'm making sure I'm not misreading it. It says, no interim injunction for mink farmers from COVID-19 rules. Indeed. So this was uh, this is the uh, uh, provincial government made regulations, including under the fur farm <laughs> regulations, who, who would have thought we had fur farm regulations, but indeed we do, uh, prohibiting essentially the breeding of mink uh, because the uh, evidence appears to be that farmed mink are susceptible to getting COVID-19 uh, and that they readily transmit it back and forth to people. Uh, and so their uh, provincial government has a, a concern <laughs> Uh, that uh, if you wind up with a uh, virus like this transmitted readily back and forth between people and mink, you could well wind up with some really unhelpful mutation, right? Yeah. And if we're uh, throwing stones at, uh, you know, bats or pangolins or whatever being sold in a wet market, <laughs> perhaps we ought not to be spreading the virus back and forth to a bunch of mink, <laughs> kind of seeing what might come of that. Hmm. Uh, and so, as you might imagine, the mink Breeders Association and the British Columbia Mink Producers Association, I bet you didn't know either of those existed uh, 30 seconds ago, uh, and naturally a number of ranches which ranched mink uh, who were prevented from doing so didn't so much like the fact that they're being told they can't do so because of the public health concerns of mutating COVID-19 by, despite safety concerns, passing the virus back and forth to herds of mink. And so 
there's litigation involving that. The, the Mink Breeders Association and others are arguing things like whether the province has jurisdiction or whether this is a federal matter. Uh, there are things they want to argue about, um, uh, litigate, and they may have merit, right? The judge concluded that, uh, you know, there's uh, you know, meaningful things here to litigate. Uh, but they were applying for, that is to say, the Mink Farms and the Breeders Association were applying for an interim injunction to try to uh, stop the regulation from having effect so that you could get back to breeding mink. Um, and so the judge here had to decide whether to grant the injunction. Uh, and we've talked before about the test for uh, an injunction, right? You've got to look at uh, things like, is there a, a case to be tried there, right? Serious issue to be tried. Is there irreparable harm? It met those requirements, right? There's a serious legal issue. Is there irreparable harm? The judge said, yes, indeed. You can't just easily start up your mink farm again. I guess maybe challenging getting the, the mink to get that going. Uh, but ultimately, they were denied their injunction because one of the principles is that there be deference to decisions made by the government uh, in terms of whether they are for the public good uh, uh, and uh, whether they would... Um, promote the public interest. And so when you're weighing the sort of third balancing, balance of interest component of an application for an interim injunction, uh, a judge needs to uh, consider those things. And here, the judge found that even though there was a serious issue, and even though there might be irreparable harm to the mink farmers, um, while the particular risk of the mutation might be low, uh, it's real, and the result of it could be devastating if there is some mutation in the virus by passing it back and forth to mink. Uh, and so as a result, uh, the judge has denied the application for an interim injunction to the mink farmers. And so at the moment, no mink farming, uh, and we'll have to wait the eventual uh, outcome of the case to see whether the uh, mink ranches uh, are successful in getting going uh, again, uh, despite the... Uh, COVID risk of passing the virus back and forth. The mink shall rise again, or at least it is hoped, one might think. <laughs> Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070.